Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. Uh, if you missed it in the announcements, my name is Joe Johnson, and I am the campus minister with RUF at Mississippi State University. And uh, I've been there for about two years. Before that, I was the campus minister at a small little school in Birmingham, Alabama, called Birmingham Southern. And what that means to be RUF, y'all have been a long-time supporting church. You pray for us often and send us uh, your children as students there. But just to remind everybody, RUF is our denomination's campus ministry. Um, that back in the 1970s, we decided as a denomination to send an ordained man to campus to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve. And I have the honor of doing that at State. Um, I love getting to see God work in the lives of students, but even more than that, I love that I have a front row seat to the future of the church. As I look at my leaders think about how to do ministry on campus, as I look at my students yearning for their friends to know Jesus more, I get a glimpse, a little picture of what the future of the church is going to be like. Um, and the future is bright. God's at work. And so thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. And thank you for inviting me. I've never been here before, so I'm glad to be here. Uh, this morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 32, if you have your Bibles. Genesis chapter 32. And to look at one of my favorite texts of Scripture. One of the cool things I get to do is go to different churches, and they tell me I can preach on whatever I want to preach on, so I get to do these little stories, these little snippets that I, um, I can't stop thinking about. And this morning, what we're going to do is read a famous passage of Scripture, but also one of the most interesting and maybe one of the most complicated or strangest in the Old Testament. Because what we're going to read is a man named Jacob wrestle God, sustain a pretty serious injury, and then walk away with a new name. But what we're going to see is not so much how does Jacob do in this passage? But what does God do in Jacob's heart by entering in and loving him too much to leave him the same? So with that in mind, let me read our passage. This is Genesis 32, starting in verse 22. The same night Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and set them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Amen. Now, the grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let me pray and ask for God's help. Uh, 
Father, you are the same today and yesterday and forever. And so we talk to you as the same God that was there that day with Jacob at work in your people. Uh, Lord, we pray you open our eyes and ears to hear and see truth and that, Jesus, we see you more clearly and find you more beautiful. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, When I was about 10 years old, my grandfather gave me a gift. Uh, My grandfather died uh, when I was a junior in high school, and my grandfather was also known for being a pretty harsh um, and intimidating figure. Um, But the good position that I had was I was his only grandson. He had all granddaughters except for me, who was the tail end of his grandchildren. And so I didn't know my grandfather as an intimidating man. I knew my grandfather as Papa, who loved me and uh, had a special relationship with me as his only grandson. And so when I was 10 years old, he set me down with my father next to me and gave me a gift. And the gift surprised me uh, because the gift was a jewelry box. And again, my grandfather, World War II veteran, pretty, pretty uh, stiff, uh, harsh man, did not see him having a jewelry box, but he gave me that. And I opened it as the both of them were staring at me. And inside that box was 30 cufflinks, 30 pairs of cufflinks. My grandfather was an executive at Sanderson Farms his whole career and so wore a suit every day. He uh, wore cufflinks every day. And I remember in that moment, 10-year-old Joe could feel something was important in front of me. I could feel the stares from my dad and my grandfather. They were wanting a reaction out of me. I'm a bit of a people pleaser. I want to give them that reaction. But the problem was this. I did not know what a cufflink was. I had a box of things that I did not understand. And so I sort of feigned, thank you so much. And even to this day, that box is in my closet, and I almost never wear them because I don't own a French cuff shirt and do not wear cufflinks. But that moment, I knew something important was happening. I did not know what to do with it. Um, I think passages like this are like that moment. We know something important's happening. Jacob just wrestled with God. But when we think about the highlights of the story, it's a little confusing on how this is supposed to apply to our life. Uh, Jacob wrestles a man in the middle of the night. He doesn't know who it is, but afterwards is convinced that it's God. And actually, the New Testament refers back to this passage a few times, saying he wrestled God. Wrestles throughout the night, breaks his hip, gets a blessing, gets a name, and then walks away. And Moses only gives it 11 verses, and it's not really referred to again for the rest of Jacob's life. What do we do with this? What is going on in this story? Well, as we look at it today, I I want us to see this is giving us a picture of how God's grace changes hard hearts. How God's grace changes hard hearts. That God loved Jacob and loves his people too much to leave him and us the same, but enters into our life, sometimes graphically, in order to mold us and shape us and make us into who he made us to be. So I want to ask one question. How does God's grace change us? I want to say three things as we walk through this passage. I want to see God's grace changes us because he pursues us in the darkness, he gives us a new identity, and he leaves a mark upon us. God's grace changes us because God pursues us in the darkness, gives us a new identity, and he leaves a mark upon us. So first, he pursues us in the darkness. I am plopping us into Genesis chapter 32 i got to catch up a little bit with what's going on. 
Jacob is one of my favorite people in the Bible uh, because Jacob has a duality to him. On one hand, he is Abraham's grandson. He is the new patriarch of this family that God's promises will come through. But if there's anyone in the world at the time right now, Genesis chapter 32, if there's anyone in the world who would know God, who would know what a life of faith is to look like, is to actually be someone we should look to follow, it should be Jacob. He's the grandson of Abraham. But at the very same time, what's true about Jacob is that his life is a mess. Known for constant failures. Known actually for being a swindler and a cheater. The first two stories we get about Jacob in the Bible are him stealing the birthright from his brother for a bowl of soup and stealing a blessing that was made for his brother by cheating his old dad who was dying and blind. That's who God is choosing to work in and through. And where we're catching up with him now is, is kind of grown-up Jacob. Uh, he was forced to leave his family because his brother Esau, being stolen from, swore that he wanted to kill Jacob. Next time he saw him, he would kill him. So Jacob decided that was a great time to leave the family for a little bit. 20 years of staying with his uncle Laban, of accidentally marrying two women, of at this point having 11 children with those two wives and two servants. He would go on to have 13 children, very fruitful time in Jacob's life. There was good moments of interacting, encountering God. There was bad moments where God confronted him with his sin. Jacob's life is a mixed bag. But here we are seeing a sign of faith in Jacob's life. Uh, God actually appears to him in the chapter 4, this one, where he calls Jacob to go home. But Jacob, it's time to go home to your family. And Jacob knows what that means. He has to deal with his brother Esau. And it's actually important to see that, that actually what it means to follow God is to have a life of repentance. And what repentance sometimes looks like is to reconcile with broken relationships. Jacob has to deal with his brother. God fills him with confidence, shows him angels around him that Jacob is not alone. And so Jacob takes his family, his riches, his servants, his livestock, and they begin to head home. And as they're heading home, Jacob receives a message that down the road, a few miles ahead, his brother's waiting for him. And his brother's waiting for him with 400 men. Now Jacob is smart enough to know that if someone who has sworn to kill you is waiting for you with 400 men, that is not a welcoming committee. That is an army. So Jacob forms a plan, and the plan is a good one. He takes everything that he has. He's a wealthy man now. And he begins to send all of his riches and servants and livestock and waves. And as they approach Esau, they are to present themselves to Esau to say, a tribute to you from your brother. And wave upon wave of gifts and tributes and riches, the hope is that by the time he sees his brother, all will be forgiven. It's a good plan, and I do think there's faith in it. I actually think part of this is Jacob giving back what he's stolen to his brother. But I also think this is cheating, swindling Jacob all over again too. I think this is Jacob trying to figure out how he can get out of this mess how he can take it into his own hands, and so he forms a plan where he thinks he's in control. But then here's where we find ourselves. Just look at verse 23. He took them, his whole family, everyone, and sent them across the stream with everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. 
I have certain questions about passages when I preach them that I, I, I can't wait to ask in the new heavens and new earth, the people that were there. I want to ask them a question that no commentary can answer. One of the questions I have for this text, why, Jacob, were you alone? Why did you stay back? What was going on in that moment? Everything that he has before him, and he stays back in the middle of nowhere by himself in complete darkness. Some people think he was praying. I would understand that. Praying that God will be with him. He's going through this dangerous time that God would deliver him. Uh, maybe he has 11 children and just needed a moment by himself, right, to collect his thoughts. There's a part of me that has always wondered, was Jacob tempted to leave? That would not be out of his character. Was he being filled with temptation to get out of there? Was he paralyzed with fear? Was he ever going to move forward? But whatever was going through his mind and whatever was happening, in that moment, God breaks in. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of broken relationships behind him, and nothing but certain death before him, it's in that moment of paralyzing fear that God breaks in. And he doesn't come in a dream that he has before with Jacob. He doesn't come with a tender hand on his back. He comes in like a middle linebacker and puts Jacob into the ground. Why, do you, why does he do that? I don't really know. But I can say that I think this is the most perfect way for God to intervene in Jacob's life. He fights. He wrestles. Almost as if to say, Jacob, you have been fighting and wrestling your whole life. You've been fighting your brother since the womb. You've been fighting your dad over getting a blessing from him. You've been fighting your uncle Laban. You've been fighting the world. You've been fighting and wrestling with everyone. And now I'm going to show you that you actually haven't been fighting them You've been fighting me. You've been wrestling against me. And now I'm here. Let's do this. Because this is the amazing picture of grace. I don't think this is just God disciplining Jacob. I think this is an amazing picture of grace where God condescends on Jacob's level to come for the one thing that Jacob has refused to give up. His own heart. That God shows up when he has nothing else. He's got no riches. He's got no plan. He is by himself scared. And that's when God shows up. Why? Because God wants his heart. I think this is a picture of how God works in the darkest moments. That he enters in for our distracted hearts to look at him. I see this every year at Mississippi State, every semester at Mississippi State, where students come with big plans. And one by one, those plans don't come to fruition. It could be small things, like the fraternity or sorority they wanted, didn't want them. It could be bigger things of hard relationship issues with, with dating or friendship. It could be really deep things, things from back home or diagnosis or whatever else it might be. And I'm not saying any of those things are good. But as a campus minister, when I'm trying to connect them with what God's doing in their life, sometimes I wonder, I wonder if this is God breaking into the darkness. I wonder if this is a season that you are actually invited to invite Jesus in, that you may see him more clearly, to see his goodness, to see his work, in the midst of darkness, to see his beauty. Has God ever done that to you? To find you alone at the end of your rope? 
And that in that moment, you finally see his beauty and his work. He's there for your whole heart. God breaks into our darkness. But secondly, he gives us a new identity. So the wrestling goes on. And the text tells us, verse 24, that it goes on to the breaking of day. Uh, That would be hours and hours of fighting. Uh, And I remember being a kid and wrestling with my friends, and I remember wrestling and fighting is exhausting. And so this tells me that if a grown man is wrestling and fighting someone for hours on end, this tells me that he thinks he's wrestling and fighting for his life. The adrenaline flowing through him. Hours and hours of fighting. I don't know what this looked like, but it's what the text tells us. But I have to answer a question that bothers me. Why does Jacob seem to win this? It seems like a strange question to ask, right? Like, but I, my brain, I cannot not answer that question. Why does the fight seem close? If he's wrestling God in all of his power and all of his might. Well, I think this looks like what happens every day when I get home to my house. My three-year-old son, Sam, wants to wrestle. He doesn't want to cuddle. He doesn't want to talk. He wants to fight. And my wife just gives him to me because she does not want to fight and it's now my job to step in. And we wrestle and we tickle and he gets thrown around on cushions. That we interact in that way. I'm on my hands and knees. But what's happening in that moment? My son is giving 100% effort. Every ounce of power in that little body he's throwing at me. And what am I doing? I am restraining power. I'm coming low. I am condescending. But if I used all of my strength, that would be incredibly bad fathering. But to show him my love and my care for him, I enter into his world and restrain. What God is doing here is he's play wrestling with his boy. He's condescending towards Jacob, inviting him in to this type of relationship for him to see God more clearly. And it begins to change, change Jacob. And when does the change begin? Did you see it? This is verse 26. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now this is sort of a strange thing, but, but, but go with me here. That when Jacob began to fight this man, Jacob's fighting style would be trying to get away from him. Right? To, to, try, to try to break free and to run away. But at some point or another, Jacob refused to let the man go. He he clung to him and then began to beg for a blessing. That at some point in this wrestling, Jacob began to understand a little bit more of what was going on. And is there a better picture of what happens in the life when someone's converted than they go from wrestling to get away from God to clinging to him, begging for a blessing? And Jacob does ask for a blessing. And why does he ask for that? Why does he know to ask for that? Well, that's actually the theme of Jacob's life, is to look for blessing. He longed to hear it from his dad. He longed to hear it from the world. He longed to achieve it from a beautiful wife and from riches. But now he's finally gone to the right place, the right person, to hear the blessing that was made for him to be God's people. And when God gives him this blessing, it's interesting that God asked for his name. Did you notice that? God knows Jacob's name. He doesn't need that information. But the last time, if you remember, 
Jacob received a blessing from someone important. It was his dad. And when his dad asked for a name, Jacob says, it's your son Esau. He had to pretend to be another person. He had to hide behind his brother's clothes. He had to pretend to be the loved older brother so that he can get love and acceptance from his dad, a shame that I could not imagine. But here, with God, in the presence of God, when asked for his name, Jacob finally says, it's me. In all vulnerability, in all weakness. And actually, Kent Hughes, a commentator, says that Jacob's name is a confession of sin in and of itself because it means cheater. That Jacob comes to God in all vulnerability and declaring himself a sinner and asks for a blessing and finally gets what he's looking for by the one who made him. And what is the blessing? In part, it's a new name. Your name's not Jacob anymore, but Israel. And why is that important? Because God is changing his identity, the core of who he is, from an association with his sin to now an association with God, striven with God. That's what Israel means. Why are names so important in Scripture? Why are names changed in Scripture? Why does God interact with someone like Abram and call him Abraham after? It's because God is in the business of changing his people's identity. Because that's what the gospel does. What the gospel does is it takes our identity from sin and shame and failure and condemnation and wrath and it puts a new name upon us. It puts what Jesus says about his people. What does Jesus say about his people? That we are his beloved bride, washed clean by his blood, clothed with a righteousness that is not our own, that we are children of God. How do we begin to change? We begin to believe the new identity God gives us, to live into that new identity as his children, to know that the only person that gets to tell me who I am is not the world and not me. The only person that gets to say who I am is Jesus. And he says it clearly. God begins to change Jacob by a new identity. He is a new man. And he's done that for his people. Do we believe the new name that he gives us? And now lastly and briefly, God begins to change his people and that he leaves a mark. And that he leaves a mark. What is the one evidence that Jacob had this encounter with God? In other words, when he catches up with his family in, in a little bit and he tells them, guys, it was crazy last night. I, uh, I wrestled God and um, I'm a, I'm, you know, I have a new name, so you all got to call me Israel now. Um, and everything's different. The man has two wives and 11 children. Someone's going to ask a question. Someone's going to ask for some proof. And what is the evidence that Jacob had this encounter? It's the injury. It's, it's the limp. This amazing picture, this is verse 31. The sun rose upon Jacob as he passed Penuel, as he was walking away, limping because of his hip. I know that Rembrandt painted Jacob wrestling God and the angel. But I wish he had painted that scene because I think that scene's more beautiful. Strong, capable Jacob, who takes everything in his own hands, who can control everything, he'd figure his way out. Now all of a sudden we see a new Jacob, the sun rising, a new day, a new Jacob where he's limping, where he's weak. And in other words, 
He leaves this encounter with God not stronger but weaker, not more independent but dependent, and not more confident of himself, but actually more in touch with his need. With every step that he takes, he remembers the God that he needs. I actually think one of the ways we know Jacob's a new man here is Moses including this lump. A man who knows he's not strong, but knows the strength of his God. Sinclair Ferguson, um, who was my pastor when I was in college, I remember him telling a story where he said, you know, when anyone ever tells me about someone, someone they want me to think highly of, whether it's a young pastor who's a good preacher and has a thriving ministry or a person in our church who people think should be a deacon or elder one day because they're just so great. Dr. Ferzen usually says, he responds to that by saying, that's amazing. I can't wait to meet him. But answer me one question. Does he limp? In other words, does he have all those gifts and also know his need for Jesus? Has he had an encounter like this that leaves him humbled before God? Does he know his sin? Does he know his weakness? In other words, is he a mirror that shows the goodness of Jesus? And I would ask that question of us as well. Are we people who don't show our greatness to the world, but are mirrors to reflect the greatness of Jesus? His forgiveness, his redemption, his work. Because isn't that what this passage is doing? It's being a mirror to show us Jesus. The one who is to come, who came wrestling. Not with God, but with God's wrath. Whose body was also broken. Not to get a blessing for himself, but to give a blessing as he takes his people's curse. The one who came to give a new identity to his people. It was actually his. He earned it. He achieved the blessing. He is the true son of God. And yet he bestows that upon his people, uniting himself to us, that we come before God as blameless in the name of Jesus alone. That is the gospel that changes. That is a grace that molds and shapes our hearts, that actually makes us weaker and more dependent, but more clearly seeing the strong Savior that we have? Do we know him? Are we more in love with him? Do we find him more beautiful? To see that the blessed life, the blessing that we're longing for is clinging to him and knowing him more. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we long for an encounter with you like this. Uh, that for many of us, when we hear about Jacob wrestling with you, we, we, we see that that's been our whole life. And Lord, I pray that we can come before you changed, knowing you more clearly, even in the midst of darkness, believing what you have done for us, and be people who walk and lead with a limp. And now as we come to your table, Jesus, will you tell us where you told us of your body being broken and your blood being poured out. Oh Lord, may we we come with humble and broken hearts and be filled with the hope of the gospel that's true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. 
I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.